0: Good morning, Grace family. It's a joy to see you. Our scripture reading, uh, we continue in the book of Luke. Please, I invite you to open your Bibles, follow along, follow the screens. Uh, We welcome those uh, visitors, those of you who are remote, tuning in, follow along with us, if you would, please. Continue in uh, Luke chapter 1. Starting with uh, verse 57, So follow along with me if you would please, this is when it begins to get exciting. <laughs> verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of our relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. In the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our god whereby the sun rise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light a revelation to the gentiles and to the glory of your people give light To darkness to sit in to to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, sorry, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of God.
1: Amen. I agree with Jim. It's starting to get good. Starting to get good. We're in Luke's gospel. Not just for Advent season, we're going to be in Luke's gospel for a, for a while. We're going to make our way through this entire book. I hope we're starting to get excited about that. It's, it's a historic account, as we learned. Luke set out to write an orderly account of Jesus from eyewitnesses, something that we can read and say, okay, let me wrestle with this. If it's true, let me wrestle with the truthfulness of it. Let me start out this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever been saved? And I don't mean spiritually. I mean, have you ever had your life saved? How many of you have ever, like, you were going to die and somebody saved your life? Yeah, a lot of us. I, I've never told this story publicly, and I'm about to tell it. Um this happened about, I don't know, 12 years ago. We were, all the pastors and back then deacons were at a meeting over at Gyro Place sitting at long tables. It was uh, a meeting, you know, a typical, typical leadership meeting, and somebody had put out little snacks on the tables, candies and whatnots, and um, on the table was a little pack of Sour Patch Kids. Do you know these little demons? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If I ever find out who put those Sour Patch Kids on that table, so help me. Um, So, I decided I like Sour Patch Kids. I'll have a Sour Patch Kid. And I opened it up, and I was eating my Sour Patch Kids, and something went tragically wrong. Somehow, one of those Sour Patch Kids went down the wrong pipe, and I found myself unable to breathe. So, I'm sitting there in the meeting, and I'm wondering, you know, like, do I interrupt the meeting? <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. No. I, I, so, by the grace of God, sitting right next to me, I was on the corner, right next to me was Pastor Jamie. I am thankful that it was not one of the other pastors, because I'm not so sure they would have saved me. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm sure any of them would lay down their life for me. So… I look at Jamie, I'm like, I can't breathe, except nothing came out. I can't breathe. I immediately stand up, I'm in panic mode. I stand up, and Jamie jumps into action, Heimlich's me. (laughs) Sorry, Patch Kid. (laughs) And I am here to tell the tale. Yes. I was saved. I was saved. Now maybe you have a story like that in your life. Maybe it's way more dramatic (laughs) or harrowing than that story is. Today we're gonna talk about salvation, knowledge of salvation. Zechariah will use this word twice in his song, the word salvation. Do you, we, Christians love the word salvation. It's one of our favorite words. (laughs) We talk about being saved. Will ask when were you saved? Tell me about your salvation. Will will ask people, do you want to be saved? And so it's important that we understand this word. What does it mean? And I'm I'm here to tell you, it means exactly what you think it means. There's not some cryptic Greek meaning to it. Um, salvation means that you are in danger, and you need to be rescued. That's what it means. It means the same thing we think it means today. Uh, uh you know. The building is collapsing, and, and the fireman rescues you up and gets you out of the burning building. You were saved. You're about to get hit by a car, and somebody pushes you out of the way. You were saved. You're choking on a Sour Patch Kid, and somebody Heimlichs you. Saved. It means what we what we think it means. We all need… So, that, so the whole point of the Bible, the, you know, one of, one of the big messages of the bible is that we all need salvation we all need a savior and in reality we all have a savior we all have something that we're counting on or someone that we're counting on to save us to rescue us maybe it's a god maybe it's a deity maybe not maybe it's another person or maybe it's a situation or maybe it's most likely it maybe it's yourself I will save myself. And of course, the Bible comes along and says, no, God, the creator God of the Bible, is your Savior. He wants to rescue you. He wants to bring you into goodness and life. And um, in in Zechariah's day, in Luke's day, the, the philosopher Plato had already lived. Plato has come and gone. He lived in about 300 B.C., 350 B.C. Um, and this is a summary of one of Plato's thoughts. Plato would talk about the good, and he, and he said this, for something to be good, it has to be perfect, eternal, unchanging, and outside of space and time. That's philosophy 101. If you take a philosophy ca- class at the University of Maryland or wherever, um, you're going to learn this in the first month. This is what the good is, Plato's forms, Plato's theory of of forms. And so, for something to be good, it has to be perfect, eternal, unchanging, and outside time and space. Well, that sounds like God, doesn't it? (laughs) That sounds like God. Uh, For Plato, it was not God. It was the good, whatever that is. So, let me ask you this. Is your Savior… Whatever you're counting on today to save you, is it perfect, eternal, changeless, and outside of yourself, outside time and space? Is it? So, that's the question that we all got to ask ourselves. So, if you, if you say, my Savior is God, then check, 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 check. If you say, my Savior is myself, then no, 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 no. I'm not perfect, I'm not eternal, I'm not unchanging, and I'm not outside time and space. Neither is my wife, neither are my kids, neither is my career, neither is my ministry, right? None of those things are. And so, in order to um, understand what it means to be saved, we want to understand what it means to have someone who can offer us these things, perfection, everlasting life, changelessness, and it has to be someone who's outside of us. So let's look at how Zechariah describes it. He's a little bit of a philosopher himself. He's dabbling in philosophy. And so we're going to look at his song this morning. Jim read it for us. Starts in verse 67, Luke 1, 67. Uh, We're going to look at it in groups of twos, two salvations, two problems, two solutions, and then we'll land on one Savior. Okay, two salvations, two problems, two solutions, one Savior. Okay, two salvations. Look at verses 68 through 74. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David, He has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Immediately, Zechariah, when singing about salvation, this horn of salvation, he connects it to David, David, the Davidic figure, the Davidic king. In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel, God makes a promise to David, and he says, Hey, David, one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. Uh, uh, Someone from the line of David is going to be the king forever. And so every Jew knows that promise. And when this is written, they're under Rome. You with me? And even in their own little corner of Rome, Rome was nice and said, Y'all can have a king. And who remembers who the king is? His name is Herod. And guess what? Herod is not from the line of David. Herod's an Edomite. He's a distant cousin of the Jews, and he's a really bad dude on top of that. He's not Davidic biologically, and he's not Davidic spiritually. He's not a good guy. He's a really bad guy. And so, everybody is waiting for this king to come, this better king, this David king who will rescue us from our enemies. And then Zechariah jumps into, he, jumped, he takes us back to Abraham, verse 72, to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Well, what what oath did God swear to Abraham? Well, Land, a promised land. Okay, so far, we're 0 for 2. God made a promise that there's going to be a David king. There's not a David king. God made a promise that we're going to have the promised land forever. Rome's got our land. We pay taxes on the land that God promised to us. And so, God, You're striking out here. One more strike, and can we trust You? And then he takes us to the Exodus. Zechariah takes us to the Exodus, verse 73, verse 74, 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Okay, Exodus students, we just went through Exodus here for a year and a half. That's, that's the Exodus summarized into one verse. He brought us out from our enemies so that we would serve him without fear. In the book of Exodus, they come out of Egypt and they serve God at Mount Sinai. Okay, so now Zechariah is grabbing all these most important parts of their history and he's saying, this is what we want. This is the pattern we want. God, you have a pattern of us being in bondage. Egypt, we're in bondage. You rescue us. Babylon, Babylon, we're in bondage, you rescue us. Rome, we're in bondage. You rescue us. Okay. And and of course, it's going to come in some physical, earthly way. At least that's what everybody assumes. And likely you can relate to all of this. Who amongst us doesn't want some sort of earthly, physical, situational, circumstantial change to our lives? (laughs) Who amongst us is not… When we're praying at night, we're not praying for… We're all praying for physical and earthly things healings and, and financial uh, success, and for our, for our kids to do well in school, or for our, for our friends to be able to get that job that they're trying to get. We're praying for those things. We're praying for our earthly concerns and cares, and rightly so, and rightly so. But in a lot of ways, because the, because the Jews could only see this as physical, they would end up disappointed, won't they? At the end end of Luke, I'm going to jump us ahead real quick. At the end of Luke, chapter 24 of Luke, Jesus has died and come back to life. Famous story. And Jesus is walking out of Jerusalem, and He meets up with two disciples. Do you remember this? They don't recognize Him. And they're bummed. They're totally bummed. They're discouraged. And Jesus is like, what's up? And they're like, are you the only person walking out of Jerusalem who doesn't know what just happened? Jesus died. And we had hoped that he would rescue Israel. Ah, oh, bummer, Jesus says. Not really, but <laughs> you get the idea. See, that's, that's how we are, isn't it? We, I had hoped, I became a Christian and I had hoped that would fix my marriage. I became a Christian and I had hoped all of my addictions would go away. I became a Christian and I had hoped that meant all my kids would grow up and love the Lord and be nice and go to church and all of, all of those amazing things. I became a Christian and I had hoped that my bank account would increase. I mean, I give. How come God's, God's not reciprocating? On and on and on and on. And so often we are left disappointed because we miss the spiritual salvation for the physical salvation. Would we say two salvations, so a physical salvation, a spiritual salvation. So in verse 74, Zechariah says, delivered from our enemies that we might serve God without fear. Serve God without fear. Fear. Oh, my. That would be nice, wouldn't it? To serve God. Zechariah, before all this, Zechariah did not serve God without fear. I promise you. And especially earlier in the chapter, he goes into the temple to light the incense altar, an angel shows up, and it literally says, Zechariah was afraid. Zechariah doesn't believe, Zechariah is sinning, Zechariah is cursed, Zechariah no talk for nine months. <laughs> but trust me, every time a priest went into that temple, they did it with fear. They wore little bells on their outfit. <laughs> if the bells stopped ringing, then we know God struck them dead. They did something wrong. Because when you live under law, you live under fear. Do it wrong, zap, God gets you. Zechariah is envisioning a reality where we can serve God without fear. For a lot of us, this is how we relate to God. We relate to God out of fear. I have to keep obeying God or else God's going to get me. I know this is just God punishing me. Our biggest fear, the Bible teaches in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it says that our biggest fear is the fear of death, the fear of death. We all live under the fear of death. In verse 79, Zechariah will call it the shadow of death. We are under the shadow of death. But death was not God's original plan for us, was it? God did not create us to die. He created us to live. And I think we know that. I think deep inside of every human soul, we know we're not supposed to die. And so we fight to live. We see it in our poetry. We see it in our science. Dylan Thomas's poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, where he begs his dying father, rage, rage against the dying of the light. We know we're not supposed to die. And look at our science, look at the transhumanism movement that is maybe right next to sexuality, maybe the biggest ethical question in Christianity today, where we're trying to decide, is it right and good for us to create superhumans who basically live forever? AI, nanotechnology, biological engineering, cyborgs, bionics, it's all at our fingertips. We can live longer We can live better. We can avoid death. Death is no longer a moral problem in our society. It's a technological problem. It's just a problem to solve. And with enough effort and a big enough budget, we can do it. Death, the fear of death. Let me ask you a question. What's going to happen to you when you die? Man, this is really dark for Christmas, Brady. Yeah. What's going to happen to you when you die? Have you thought about that? If you don't have an answer, I would submit that that's terrifying. That's terrifying. If you let yourself think about it, that's terrifying. You can choose religion. Most religions say, if you do enough good things... If your good outweighs your bad, then maybe God will let you live forever in heaven. Still terrifying, <laughs> right? Still terrifying. Francis Schaeffer once, uh, once quipped, what if, what if there was a box on our necks that recorded every thought we had and played it out loud for everybody to hear? Do <laughs> you still think you'd go to heaven? <laughs> I don't think so. Young people, you might, you might go off to college, university, and be confronted with nihilism. There is no afterlife. Everything is meaningless. There's no absolutes. And that's good. Now you can live in the moment. There's nothing to worry about. Life has no meaning, and that's okay. Create your own meaning. Well, obviously, Plato's gone out the window. <laughs> if there's no meaning, there's no nothing eternal or perfect or changeless or beyond space and time. There's no absolute truths, just nature. But what? But then, why do anything? You do you. That's the creed of the nihilist. Just do what makes you happy. There's a clothing store. Their Christmas ad this year, um, the, you know, the tagline was, "Do only what you love this Christmas." Really? And the commercial is people throwing their Christmas decorations into the wood chipper and a Christmas party where everybody's playing a board game and the guy comes in and he picks up the board game and throws it into the fish tank. I don't like playing games. I'm only going to do what I love. Well, what if I love something different than what you love? Who decides? Who gets to decide? What if I love killing all the Jews in Germany in 1938? Is that wrong? Or is that right because it's what I love? You see the problems? I hope you can see the problems. In Luke's day, Stoic philosophy was a big deal. The Stoics said, you don't have to fear death because if you just live an honorable life, everything you do will live on after you die. Today we call that leave a legacy. (laughs) leave a legacy, so that after I die, everybody will remember what a great guy I was. And they'll all the, you know, when Brady dies, if Jamie had let me die on that fateful sour patch day, (laughs) I'm sure all of you would have come to the funeral and would have lined up around the building to say nice things about me, right? Somebody say amen, somebody? (laughs) Some, some, just any. Can I get one name? Joy? Can I get an amen? <laughs> and so we're constantly. Now we have a new fear of death. Maybe you're not afraid of dying, but maybe you're afraid of living. Have I done enough? Have I left my mark? Have I achieved my dreams? Did I accomplish my bucket list? Have I left a legacy? As Ben Franklin said, if you would not be forgotten, as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth the reading or do things worth the writing. He did that, but most of us don't. Most of us don't. What problem do all of these have? Sure, are they, uh, are they not practical? Are all of these philosophies not practical? Yeah. Are all of these... Um, philosophies illogical? I would argue they are. You might not. I would argue they are. But here's the real problem. Here's the real problem with all of this. We have disconnected, here we go, listen, we have disconnected death from sin. We have disconnected death from sin. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. We die because we sin. We die because we sin. And none of these other philosophies, none of these other ideologies, none of these other ways of life have anything to do, do anything about your sin. You've got to recognize that you have a sin problem. What is sin? Sin is placing anything above God. Sin is hating what God loves Sin is a violation of his law of love to love God and love others. Imagine you invite me into your house, and I say yes, I'll come to your house, and I come into your house, and I proceed to break everything in your house on purpose. I vandalize your house, I destroy precious items in your house, and worse yet, I begin to hurt your children, hurt your spouse, hurt you what would you say I deserve? You would be calling the cops, right? You would call the police and you would say, lock this crazy man away. Now imagine it gets worse where I say, I don't regret doing it and I would do it again if you invite me back over. In fact, I think there's some rooms in your house I didn't get to, I'm coming back. Now if I act that way, you would say, that person deserves separation. That person deserves to not be with us anymore. That person is bent on hurting me and destroying my stuff and destroying what I care about. Listen, that's sin. Now imagine that on a cosmic scale. God has invited you to live in His Creation, his house, and what do we do as humanity? And you are, you, you too, don't think, oh, not me. No, we destroy his stuff. We are careless with each other's hearts. We are angry. We are hateful. We are bitter, or we're apathetic, which isn't any better. And God is saying, I'm afraid I'm going to have to lock you up. Guys, that's called, that's called death, and that's called hell. Death is separation from God, and hell is the prison <laughs> that you have to sit in. Why? Because you won't repent, and you won't do better, and you're not sorry. And if you die that way, then you will live separated from God. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Death. When we try to make death just into a scientific problem, a natural problem, we're, we're not acknowledging sin. The wage of sin is death. When we say, when we say well, life is meaningless anyway, there, there is no such thing as sin because there's no such thing as absolutes, we are denying sin. But the wage, it still holds that the wage of sin is death. When we think we can be good enough, that our good can outweigh our bad, and we can earn our way into God, and we can earn our way back into His good graces, that denies sin. Our sinfulness, the wage of sin, is death. To dismiss death is to dismiss sin, and to dismiss sin is to dismiss God. We owe a debt to God. That's what sin is. Sin is a debt. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. But some of you learned it this way. Forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. Why are they so different? Because that's not different. (laughs) Transgression is a debt. That's what the word means. A transgression is a debt. You, in your natural state, owe God. Thankfully, there's Two solutions to these two problems. Two problems, sin and death. Two solutions. Verse 77, what does Zechariah say? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Can I get an amen? Amen. (laughs) Amen. What if I told you that God stands waiting with open arms ready willing and able to forgive you today right now he's ready right now he's begging you right now come all you gotta do is ask just ask for my forgiveness and i'll give it but i've done so much i've done so much god god's so rich god's so rich he can He can fix all the stuff you broke. (laughs) But I've hurt people. I've hurt people. God is so good and gracious, He can restore all the people you've hurt. God stands ready to forgive you today. Yes, you've hurt His creation. Yes, you've hurt His family. Yes, you've, you've belittled His beloved sons and daughters. Yes, you've ignored people and hated people and gotten angry at people, but God wants to forgive you. God can forgive you. He wants to be reconciled to you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to trust Him. He doesn't want... Listen, God does not want you to owe Him. He wants you to trust Him. I've done the math. Sitting right here in the front row, half a million dollars of debt, Alex and Daria. You owe me. (laughs) And I got two other kids. You know what I want for Christmas? I want my million bucks. No, I don't. What parent looks at their child and says, okay, here's the bill. All the food, all the clothes, all the happiness I brought you. (laughs) the mortgage I paid, the car, the gas, uh, the lessons. We could go on and on, right? What parent in their right mind looks at their children and says, okay, you can… I'm going to put you on an installment plan. You'll start paying me back. No, we don't want that. What do we want? We want our children to know that we love them. We want our children to trust us, and to think that we're good, that we're for them, that we're not against them, and we want them to love us back. That's all we want. What does God want from us? He wants us to trust Him, and He wants us to love Him back. That's all. That's all. How? How does God do this? How does God restore this relationship? Look at verse 78. Zechariah says, "...because of the tender mercy of our God." The tender mercy of our God. Mercy is is a very common word in the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament, mercy. On Mount Sinai, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God showed up and God cried out his name, the Lord, the Lord, merciful (laughs) and gracious, kind, compassionate. Tender, tender mercy, that word tender means from the guts. From the guts. In Hebrew, you don't love from your heart, you love from your bowels. (laughs) You love from your intestines. You love from your guts. That's what Zechariah is saying. He's saying God loves us from his guts. he feels it this is not just an intellectual exercise with god god isn't just saying oh i love you because philosophically i have to love you no he's saying i love you because i feel it deep inside of me i care about you who who this morning can praise god that he functions out of a mercy system and not a merit system who amongst us can say praise god that I am under the mercy of God, the tender mercy of God. I'm, not, I'm no longer earning. I'm no longer keeping up. I'm no longer checking boxes. Zechariah, Zechariah, for all his life, Israel for hundreds of years checking boxes, checking boxes under the law, under the law. But the law does not change us, does it? Only mercy, only grace. John's name means God is gracious. Don't name him Zechariah, don't name him an Old Testament name. Give him a new covenant name. Grace. Call him Grace. Amen. Who amongst us can say, "Thank you, Lord, that I am under your grace this morning?" Amen. Is that you? You can't, listen. There's no indebtedness with grace. As soon as you start seeing grace as something you've got to pay back, you've lost the definition of grace. That's why it's grace. Grace means, grace is another very common word. In Roman society, the word grace was everywhere. It's not, the Christians didn't make it up. They already knew it. Grace means gift. It's the same word. God gives us a gift. What gift? Himself himself. He has visited us. Verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This forgiveness solves our sin problem. God no longer holds us in debt for our sins. And listen, if our sin problem is dealt with, what else is dealt with? The death problem. If the sin problem is dealt with, the death problem is dealt with. Zechariah said that we were sitting under the shadow of death. Verse 79. It gives light to all those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. But what gave light, verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us. In the King James, that word is dayspring. We sang it. <laughs> o come, thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Dayspring, sunrise. Jesus is the sunrise. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the one that shines the light of life into our shadow of death. How? By forgiving us and also by giving us his eternal life. Now we can go back to verse 74. Now we can go back to verses 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without what? Fear.
2: Wow, that's counterintuitive. Brady, everybody knows
1: that the way to get people to do things, the way to get holiness and righteousness is through fear. Good old-fashioned, you need to be afraid. Every teacher in the room knows this. Don't smile till Christmas, (laughs) right? Make them afraid of you. That's how you'll get the kids to obey. Every manager in here knows this. How do you get your employees to do what you want? You make them afraid. Every coach knows. How do you get the best out of an athlete? You terrorize them. Music teachers, you're the worst. (laughs) Sorry, Danny Beth. do it again, do it again, do it again. It's not quite right. Fear. Fear is what changes lives. Fear is what produces whole... And and we're laughing, right? I'm making jokes. But look, a lot of us are living that way, aren't we? With God. We think that that's how God is functioning with us be very afraid Titus 2:11 Do I have it on here Titus 2:11 Paul says this for the grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions Isn't that a fascinating sentence What it doesn't say for the law of God has appeared training us. It doesn't say, for the fear of God has appeared. What does it say? The grace of God has appeared. And has appeared is Jesus. How does grace appear? How does grace materialize? How does it stand in front of us? In Christ. In Christ. Look, it takes mercy and grace to change a heart, doesn't it? Some of you can't figure out why your spouse isn't changing, why your kids aren't changing, why your students aren't changing, why your roommate's still a problem, and I'm going to tell you why, because you haven't shown any mercy or grace. You're, try, you're trying to win them with, with controlling, manipulating rules and law, and I'm here to tell you it doesn't work. The only thing the law can do, with the, why the law then? Why then the law? <laughs> That question was asked in the book of Romans. Why then the law? The law came in, Paul says, to reveal our sin. That's what the law can do. The law can reveal sin. Rules reveal that we're bad, but rules can't make us good. Grace makes us good. Why? How? What's the dynamic? What's the psychology? Because when I know that God loves me no matter what, that God has forgiven all of my sins, all of my iniquities, all of my trespasses, when I know that God's grace is a never-ending flood, when I know that God is for me, no matter what I do, no matter how deep my failures, when I know that about my God, I will begin to trust that God. And after I begin to trust that God, then I will start to love that God. And once I start to love that God, I'll start to obey that God. That's how it works. That's how it works. Have you experienced that in your life? Have you received the gift of grace? Finally, one Savior. Two salvations, two problems, two solutions, one Savior. His name is Jesus. Do you remember what Plato said? Plato said, perfect, eternal, changeless, outside time and space. Do you know what that means? means it's
2: not physical. It can't be touched. Plato said, the Greek said, you know where you find this good? You
1: find it in the Logos. And then John came along. And John wrote this. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. So far, Plato's fine. But then John said this. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. The good became flesh. It entered time and space. He entered time and space. You see, Jesus burst it all open because Jesus says, I'm all those things, Plato. I'm, I'm perfect. I'm eternal. I'm changeless. But guess what else I am? I'm so loving That's what Plato didn't have. He didn't have love. I'm so loving that I will enter into time and space to rescue humanity. Jesus has to be the only Savior. He has to be. Why? Because he's God and he's a person. That's what this whole story is about. Next week, come back next week, Jesus will be born as a person, as a human, Jesus has to be God because only God can give us those things. Perfection, eternality, changelessness. And that's why why Zechariah says that John will be the prophet of the Most High. Isaiah 40 says that John the Baptist will
2: prepare the way for the Lord. God sent God.
1: God, uh, Jesus also has to be a person though. Jesus also has to be a person. Here's why. Because only another person can pay the debts of humanity. Only another person can stand in place of humanity. And that's what Jesus did on the cross, isn't it? On the cross, every debt you owe God, every transgression against God of all of us and of all humanity through all of time and space, Jesus took all of that guilt all of that condemnation, all of that debt upon himself, and he died with it. And he experienced death and hell and separation from God. He went to that prison that I talked about. But did he stay there? No. Because God vindicated him because God knew that actually Jesus had lived a perfect life. And he raised Jesus from the dead. So that now... Jesus, the life giving spirit, can share his perfection, his eternal life, his changelessness with all of us. If that's not good news, I got nothing else for you. That's all I got. That's all I got. Listen, as we close,
2: some questions. Ask yourself Am I a sinner? Am I a sinner? Shouldn't be hard to answer. Okay, question two. Is is my sin, are my
1: failures a debt that I owe to God? Are
2: my failures a debt that I owe to God? Are they a debt that you can pay on your own? has God paid that debt for you?
1: Walk through those questions. Am I a sinner? Is my sin a debt?
2: Could I ever pay that debt? Did God pay it for me? If your answer to that last question is,
1: yeah, Brady, I think I believe that. (laughs) I think I believe that I In my natural state, I owe God because of my sin, but I think I believe, I believe that God paid that for me. I want to receive that gift. I want to receive that forgiveness, that cleansing, that erasure of all that I've ever done. If that's you this morning, you know, usually, you know, we're about to do communion. Usually we put this prayer up on the screen. This is a prayer you can pray. Let's, let's all bow. Let's pray. Let's, Think about this prayer as I read it out loud. It says, Lord Jesus Christ,
2: I admit I am more broken and sinful than I ever imagined. But I believe that through you, I am more loved and accepted than I could ever hope. Contemplate those words. Think about these words. I'm more broken and
1: sinful than I imagined. But through you, I am more loved and accepted than I could ever hope. Thank you for paying my sin
2: debt. I thank you for paying my sin debt. Bearing my punishment. And offering forgiveness. I turn from my sin and receive you by faith as Savior. The prayer is not magic. It has to come from the heart. It has to be something
1: that you can say, yes, I believe this. I trust in this. I trust in what this is saying. If I had to stand in front of God and give an accounting for my sin... If I had to stand in front of God and He says, You owe
2: me an infinite debt, what are you going to do about it? What will your answer be? My answer is going to be Jesus paid my debt. Jesus paid my debt. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
1: Let's take out the elements for communion. As the musicians play, I know most of us sitting here this morning would say, yep, Brady, I have received the forgiveness of God. I am under his grace. Praise God. But I know, if you're, if you're a Christian like me, I know that a lot of times you know that intellectually, but you don't always feel it. You're not always feeling like God is forgiving me. God is actively applying forgiveness to my life. And so, as the musicians play, let's just contemplate this verse from Zechariah's prayer. Knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of our sins. Sometimes when we take communion, rightly so, sometimes when we take communion, we'll say, search your heart, look for the sins. Yep, do that, (laughs) but don't stop there. Don't stop there. Apply the forgiveness of God
2: to your heart, okay? As the musicians play, just apply that forgiveness to your heart.